I had seen the sunset on the day that you died and felt the glow of that sunrise when the tomb was open wide would I have known you could I have seen that you were more than just a man you were Lord and King but now I know you and I can see that you are Lord of all and you are Lord to me Jesus Jesus Lord to me Master Savior Prince of had seen the manger where the tiny baby lay or felt the glow of that moment when all heaven sang your praise would I have knelt to worship or just passed along the way would I Savior, and now you are my King. I will bow to worship you, and I will sing. Jesus, Jesus, Lord, to me, Master, Savior, Prince of Peace, Ruler of my heart today, Jesus, Lord, to me, Jesus, Thank you, brethren. That was beautiful. What a great song, Making Much of Jesus. We sure do appreciate that. Let me just quickly mention to you that out in the foyer area, uh, there's a little table set up with some items from our ministry. Probably won't mention this a lot during the time here, but I will tonight just so you know that it's there. Uh, Some items on prayer, uh, knowing God, Uh, other things like that. One of them I want to highlight tonight is a little booklet entitled Preparing the Way. Uh, 
And though this is not necessarily a revival crusade or a series of revival meetings, uh, this is a little resource that might be a real help to many of you in your pursuit of a revived heart. Uh, It's a collection of some great little items regarding the preparation of the heart for revival. For example, uh, the four points that Evan Roberts used during the Welsh Revival. Uh, Steps to a Pure Heart by Jonathan Edwards. Uh, R.A. Torrey's Prescription for Revival. A.W. Tozer, How to Have a Personal Revival. Uh, There's a list of the Holy Holy Club questions of John and Charles Wesley. Uh, Just a number of these type of things put together in just simple lists, uh, even a guide to a day of prayer. And uh, this is a simple little resource that we use a lot in our meetings, but I brought a bundle of these along. Now, I know what's going to happen. Somebody's going to get one and come to me and say, did you know there's a couple of typographical errors? At which point, I'm going to say, yes, two of the titles for two pages have a mistake, Uh, but we've got that taken care of. Uh, it'll still work. So anyhow, these are back there, and uh, I, I hope you'll get a hold of them. might be something that you want to just plug into your daily time with God for the next couple of weeks and uh, find to be a blessing. And the other things are there as well. Each has a price sticker on it if you want to know. It's self-serve. You can leave the money in the very fancy styrofoam bowl sitting there on the table, You say, well, what if someone steals one of your books? And my conclusion to that is, if someone steals one of my books on prayer, they probably need it. So I'm not worried about it, but uh, that'll be there. I wasn't able to bring a lot with me, so they probably are a rather limited supply. But nonetheless, I hope that'll be a help. Then there's a little business card. looks kind of like this. And uh, you'll notice that on it, it says, Palmer Revival Ministries Revival Resources. Uh, One of the things that we've done in the last couple of years, uh, initially I did this for our pastors and our ministries that we work with in India because it was a way I could get material available, but we have put together quite a collection of personal resources to help you in your walk with God. For example, there are five guides to an hour alone in prayer on the website. Uh, There are other charts and checklists. There's some outlines, some lists. For example, the sheet you were given tonight is there. And uh, anyhow, uh, the website is there. We've done it in such a way that these are all printable downloads, and then you can feel free to make as many or copy as many as you want so that they can be used. And I'd encourage you to go and take a look at those. There might be some things that would be a great help to you. Now let's take our Bibles and will you open them with me, please, to the book of Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts chapter number 1, I don't know about your Bible, but I know that in my Bible, the heading for this book in the New Testament simply says this, the Acts of the Apostles. Now, I'm not here tonight to try and be controversial, but, you know, as I've studied the book of Acts through the years, I thought maybe we should retitle this, The Acts of the Apostles Through the Holy Spirit. Because it's a tremendous book about the work of the Spirit of God through 
men and women just like me and you. But I have to tell you that I've concluded that maybe that wouldn't even be enough. And that maybe we could even do a better job of entitling it the Acts of the Apostles through the Holy Spirit in answer to prayer. Because what you find is that in the book of Acts, prayer for the early church, for the early believers, for the apostles and disciples of Christ, prayer became the great necessity. And so much of what takes place in this marvelous book did so in answer to prayer. Tonight, I want to initially direct you to one verse of Scripture, and that's Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, which tells us of the first prayer meeting held in the book of Acts. Let's actually begin reading in verse number 12. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a, day's, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James. Now we come to verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. I want to speak to you tonight from this verse. The first prayer meeting in the book of Acts. Let's ask the Lord now to speak to us, to guide us, to teach us in the study of His Word. Father, it is a privilege tonight, but it is also a great responsibility to teach and to preach Your Word to Your people. For that reason, Holy Spirit, I invite You to now be our teacher who guides us into all truth, who opens not only our eyes and ears, but our minds and our hearts to receive it. And as a result, may we tonight get the message that God has for us. Have your way now. Help me, Lord. I wouldn't even try to preach without your assistance. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Several years ago... On my 50th birthday, I chose to take the day itself as a day of spiritual reflection and rededication. I basically concluded 50 down, 50 to go. We'll see. But it was my desire to use that day to just basically launch my life into another phase for God. God used something that day to challenge me, and it became or has become somewhat of a statement of purpose, a mission statement for my life, whether I get another 50 or not. I was reading Leonard Ravenhill's book, Why Revival Tarries, 
And I came to this statement that Ravenhill put in his book, the man who can get believers to praying would usher in, under God, the greatest revival that the world has ever known. Leonard Ravenhill is certainly one of the voices of generations past. But a man that God has greatly used to impact my life. I've read his books. I've listened to him on recorded messages. I had the opportunity on one occasion late in his life to hear him preach in person for several days. I did shake his hand, though I have to tell you, I was so embarrassed I simply turned and walked away. Ravenhill had a way of saying things that just made them stick. For example, it was Leonard Ravenhill who wrote in that book that I've referenced, God's problem today is not communism, nor yet Romanism, nor liberalism, nor modernism. God's problem is dead fundamentalism. Amen or oh me. Ravenhill was the one who said, we can go ahead and pray now, or we can just wait and pray together in the concentration camp. Do you understand what I'm saying? God used his words to challenge me. And it's for that reason that I felt like I went on a mission for whatever remains of the years of my life, to call, to call God's people to prayer. The revival of the prayer meeting. I say all that tonight to say that as we come to the message from Acts chapter 1 this evening, it is my desire and prayer that God would move us to be a praying people. Here in Acts chapter 1, a lot is changing. Someone has said that in the book of Acts, Jesus went up, the Spirit came down, the disciples went out and sinners came in. That's all happening in the context of the verses we've read tonight. And so let me just quickly give you Three background thoughts, or three foundational thoughts, even before we get to verse 14. The first thing that I want to highlight is what we'll reference as the promise of the Holy Spirit. Here in Acts chapter 1, we have that interim period of 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. It was during these 40 days that in verse 4, Jesus, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now, I realize that it's at about this point that there are some folks in some of our conservative traditional churches who go, uh-oh, he's going to sound like a uniwat. 
And the reason is because some of us get uncomfortable when someone starts to speak about the Holy Spirit and particularly the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And yet Jesus himself told his followers, wait, tarry. Stay in Jerusalem until you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will remember that throughout the ministry of the Lord Jesus, He had told His disciples that the day would come when He would leave them. That didn't settle well. In fact, on occasion, they challenged him. Why? Because somehow the disciples had assumed that nothing could be better than having Jesus with them. Remember the name given to the Lord Jesus before his birth? Emmanuel, God with us. And so for about three and a half years, these men had delighted in their opportunity to walk with Jesus, to spend time with Jesus, to talk with Jesus, to see what Jesus was doing. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. He answered their questions. And in some ways, they probably assumed it doesn't get any better. But let me ask you a question. Did it change their lives? No. In fact, if you go back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel writers, do you know what we discover? That for the most part, even up until the moment of Jesus' death and even after his resurrection, the disciples remained a very sorry bunch. Fleshly, fighting, forsaking, faithless forsaking. Isn't that interesting? They experienced Jesus with them, but their lives were not changed. By the way, is that not so typical even of many followers of Jesus in our day? And yet the significance of the Holy Spirit coming was that when he came, it would no longer be God with them in the person of the Lord Jesus, but God within them in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what they needed. So when Jesus spoke of the promise of the Holy Spirit, he was talking about the fact that they were going to be baptized and eventually filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? Folks, I'm not smart enough to complicate anything. So when I take certain Bible terms, I just simplify the concept. Here's my understanding. Suppose this morning or this evening I had a five-gallon bucket of water sitting here on the platform, and suppose I brought a 32-ounce cup and I took that cup and I pushed it down into the water, what would I be doing? I'd be baptizing the cup. Right? That's what the word baptize means, to go into the water. But what else would I be doing? Eventually, I would be filling the cup. 
The cup would be in the water. The water would be in the cup. Any way you want to look at it, the cup is all about the water in which it's been placed and which has been placed in it. Folks, we take terms like the baptism of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. And you know what happens? Sometimes we get so hung up on terms and technicalities, we miss the truth. For fear of wildfire, we end up with no fire. Oh, I understand there are those in our generation who have taken biblical teaching on the Holy Spirit to an unbiblical extreme, and that's called error. I understand that. But I also want you to know that the baptism and the filling of the Spirit is just as biblical as John 3.16. And that's what Jesus was trying to convey. But notice, secondly, not only the promise, but the power of the Spirit. What was going to happen when they were placed under the total control of the Spirit of God within them? Verse number 8, But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. You know, in some ways the disciples had been so helpless. They struggled to get along with each other. They struggled to understand things Jesus was teaching. They struggled to teach. They struggled to do miracles. In a lot of ways, they seemed like a rather helpless group in and of their own efforts throughout the Gospels. But what did Jesus say? You're going to receive a new power source. God is going to work in you, and then God is going to work through you. The power of the Holy Spirit. And he explains to them that that will happen when their lives were filled with God. But notice, if you will, a third thing. The program of the Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks to them in verse 8 and tells them, Ye shall be witnesses. Folks, let's stop right here a minute. We need to understand something. Now, I'll be honest with you and tell you that I am not very good at the study of original Bible languages. Wow, am I grateful for some really good folks who are, who can help dummies like me. Can I tell you that this word witness or witnesses is one of those amazing words in Scripture that when you come to understand it as it was written before it was ever put into English, has incredible meaning. And the reason is because it literally means a martyr. We think of witnesses as living. Jesus spoke of witnesses as dying. Now, I realize that in the 21st century American church, the majority of us have a very difficult time relating to a term like this. But we need to. 
little over a year ago, during the month of July, I spent several weeks in southern India working with a, an evangelist friend of mine, a native Indian man. It was my fourth trip to India. Our family has a children's home in central India. We've had that for 55 plus years. My youngest brother is the president of that organization. But I also work with my good friend Thomas Mayer in southern India. Last year was my first exposure in my life to the persecuted church. Can I tell you folks, it was almost more than I knew how to handle. For example, I was teaching one day in the Bible college, speaking on learning, loving, and living the Word of God. And I'm on that second point, and I'm relating a story that came from a testimony I heard as a teenager. A young man from Russia had come to the United States, and he's relating an incident in a church nearby where several officers came in during a secret meeting and took a Bible and threw it on the floor and made the attendees stand up and one at a time come up and spit on that Bible. There was an older gentleman who came and picked that Bible up, however, and dried it on his coat and kissed it and laid it down on the floor, only to be grabbed by the arm, pulled out the door, and the sound of a gunshot was heard. I'm standing in front of this group of students and faculty members waxing eloquent on what it means to love the Word of God when suddenly I realized the man standing next to me, my translator, had gone silent. And I turned and looked and he's standing there sobbing uncontrollably with tears running down his face. And only then did I suddenly remember he had just shared with me days before that two of his own brothers had been martyred by the Hindu extremists for their commitment to Jesus Christ. Suddenly I'm kind of just frozen and I look out and I see students in the class sitting there with tears running down their face. I would later learn that some of these very same young people sitting in that Bible college classroom that day have run with their families into the jungles where they've hidden without food and shelter for days when their villages and homes were burned because they were followers of Jesus Christ. Folks, can I tell you what it did to me? It put me into a depression and put me on a guilt trip like I'd never experienced. I'd go back to my room at night and I would go upstairs and I would sit there and sometimes for extended periods of time just stare. I spoke in several pastors' conferences to hundreds of pastors, the second of which involved a group of a hundred pastors from northern India that we brought into the conference. I raised $6,000 in America to pay their bus and train transportation fees. Some of these men traveled three and four days to come listen to this American preacher. I remembered between sessions one day, one of the men came to me and he began to thank me for my teaching. He basically was in awe of me. 
And then he began to tell me that he had pastored for and preached for as many, I think he said, 30 years. But he said it's becoming very difficult. He said recently our village was overrun by the Hindu extremists. He said 70 or 80 of our believers were killed. He said they destroyed our homes. And then he said we lost everything and now we have nothing left but Jesus. Folks, I am not being exaggerated in one bit. I wanted to get down and lay in the dirt on the ground at his feet. Folks, I'm saying to you that sometimes living for Jesus means living in such a way that if need be, we also die for Jesus. I remember sitting in my room at night saying, why in the world did they bring this spoiled brat of an American Christian here to speak to these kind of people? My wife can tell you I came home from that trip and for days, at times I could only sit and cry. Folks, when Jesus said to those disciples, God's going to take over your life. And you're going to get a new power. And then you're going to go out into the world and be witnesses. He was talking about people who would be so committed to Christ that they would live and die and it wouldn't matter so long as Christ and the message of the gospel was taken to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Jerusalem was their hometown Judea was their homeland. Samaria was overland. The uttermost part of the earth was overseas. But basically, Jesus said, you men, under the power of the Spirit of God, will literally impact the entire world for me. I remember speaking in a conference at our children's home to over 400 alumni who at one time were growing up in our children's home. And the first message of the conference, I preached to them on Thomas the disciple who brought the gospel to India. Historically, we're told, the first representation of the gospel where he preached, where he planted churches, And where he eventually died, kneeling at the foot of a cross, praying as a Hindu priest plunged a spear through his body. I said to those delegates at that conference, so much emphasis is placed upon Thomas the Doubter. Let's give him a break. He finished well. And he gave his life in fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 as Thomas the disciple. And then Jesus went back to heaven. Isn't that interesting? Everything that I've said thus far this evening was kind of introduction. 
to help us understand that Jesus had just handed over to these followers, these disciples, an incredible assignment to change the world with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, we read in verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem. But you know what's interesting? They didn't handle things quite like a group of preachers in the 21st century would do. You know what I mean. Appoint a chairman to head our campaign. Organize committees to handle things like fundraising, advertising, printing and publication, recruitment, training, and you know, all the other things that you'd have to do if you're going to evangelize the world? No, they just called a prayer meeting. Men and women, tonight, we who are a part of the church in our generation, the 21st century church would do well to learn from the first century church. I find it interesting. Verse 13 tells us they went to the upper room. The church in our generation really enjoys the supper room. They got together to pray. The church in our generation loves to get together to play. And yet as we come to verse 14, for the first time in this incredible account in the book of Acts, we find that these believers are praying. Three things I want to highlight about their praying in verse 14. Number one, the persistence of their praying. Notice, if you will please, these all continued. What did it mean to continue? Well, it means to be earnest, to persevere, to be constantly diligent, to adhere closely to. These all continued. It's worth noting with a little bit of historical background the length of this prayer meeting. May I remind you that the period of time from Passover to Pentecost was approximately 50 days in the Jewish calendar. It's worth noting that Jesus went into the tomb when? Right before the beginning of Passover. He spent a period of three days and three nights there in the tomb. I can do simple math. 50 minus 3 means 47 days left. And then I can go back to my Bible and I can look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 and see that after his resurrection, there was a period of another 40 days during which Jesus showed himself alive. 47 minus 40 is 7. Do you know what that leads me to conclude or at least reasonably estimate? That when Jesus went back 
to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, we're still looking at a time block of at least a week until the day of Pentecost, which occurs in Acts chapter 2. That simply says that when Jesus, I'm sorry, when the disciples continued in prayer, it's very likely that their prayer meeting lasted maybe as long as a week. We have interesting terms for prayer in our generation, don't we? And sadly, many of them have uniquely limited our praying. For example, people talk about a word of prayer or people talk about a prayer meeting. You know what my observation is about most prayer meetings? They're more meeting than prayer. Singing, testimonies, announcements, Bible studies, giving prayer requests, by the way, all of which are very legitimate. But sadly, we then come to the last three or four minutes and the, someone says, you know what, our time is always gone, almost gone. Brother so-and-so, will you stand and just close our meeting in prayer? And then we call that prayer meeting. I don't know what it was, but somehow these early followers of Jesus, these early disciples, grasped the concept of continuing in prayer. But I want to show you a second thing. Not only do we see the persistence, but the product of their praying. Back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer. It's interesting that in the first five chapters of the book of Acts, if I'm not mistaken, the phrase in one accord appears five times and it literally means unanimous. This is another one of those moments that folks in our churches have a tendency to go, wait a minute, unanimous? Well, that might have happened then, but it doesn't happen now. And that might have happened there, but it doesn't happen here. And that might have worked for them, but it isn't going to work for us. We don't do anything unanimous around here. Really? What a shame. Because unanimous becomes reality when everybody wants what God wants. Folks, how does a typical church board meeting or business meeting work? I've been in enough of them. I know. You've been in enough. You know. We come together and we spend a minute or two talking to God about what He wants and an hour or two talking to, about what we all want. And then we wonder why when the vote is taken that we're anything but unanimous. Folks, if the church was to again grasp the concept of prayer and bring it in to the everyday function, 
the, even the business side of the work of God, do you realize that the product of our praying would be an incredible sense of unity and harmony? The body of Christ would not be off on each member's own agenda or program, but each would be drawn together seeking what God wants more than anything. If tonight I was to go back and stand in the center of this auditorium and I was to take uh, one of the, the men and ask him to stand in each corner and then I said, brethren, will you each come to me? And each of those men begins making his way toward the center of the room where I'm standing. Are you aware that there are two things that would happen? Number one, each of those men would get closer to me. But are you aware, number two, that each of them would get closer to the others? See, when the body of Christ goes back, to the pursuit of closeness to God, it will experience closeness to the brethren that is unprecedented. The product of their praying was that the body of believers was drawn together in one accord. But let me thirdly give you the petition of their praying. We're told in verse 14... They continued in one accord in prayer and supplication. You say, what was their prayer request? Well, maybe I'm going to look at this thing backwards, but instead of looking at the request, I'm going to look at the answer. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 says, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost was fully come... That seven-day period that was left in that block of time, they were all with one accord in one place. Continue reading, and suddenly, unexpectedly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Verse 3, And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. The last part of verse 4, and they began to speak with other tongues. Can I pause for a moment to say that that is how most people view Acts 2, 1 to 4 and the events of the day of Pentecost. And yet may I say to you this evening that the significance of what happened in answer to their prayers was not wind, fire, or tongues. The significance was, in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said they would be baptized. The ensuing result was they were filled. Suddenly you have a group of individuals full of God. Men and women, is that not an incredible reality of what revival does in the lives of people? Jesus had taught them, Luke chapter 11, how much more shall the Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? How do I know what their petition was? 
I can see what the answer was. They experienced a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God in their lives. Understood, understand, that day they got all the Holy Spirit. They wouldn't have to bark like dogs, laugh like hyenas, or do cartwheels like circus clowns to get any more. On a daily basis, they just needed to make sure that the Holy Spirit got all of them. And that's why we read in Acts chapter 2 that these men there in that upper room experienced the fullness of God and then headed to the streets of Jerusalem. Can you imagine that day? You couldn't shut them down. You couldn't shut them out. You couldn't shut them up. And the Bible says they went out onto the streets of Jerusalem and they began to speak in unknown tongues. Unknown, that is, to them. But in reality, they were speaking in known languages. Sixteen of them are named. Can I just pause for a moment to say that may be one of the areas where even the modern charismatic and tongues movement doesn't even biblically handle the subject. In our day, to most folks, the experience of tongues some, somehow sounds something like this. But when those men stepped out onto the streets of Jerusalem, the Spirit of God enabled them to do something they couldn't do themselves. I taught in a pastor's conference in India last year that had to be double translated. I would speak in English. One man would then repeat it in Tamil. Another would then repeat it in Hindi. Why? Because I could only speak in English and sometimes have trouble doing that very well. But these men went out onto the streets and began to speak in languages they didn't even know, uplifting the gospel of Christ. And suddenly people are going, wait a minute, I recognize what he's saying. I know that language. And people began to gather to hear these men teach and preach the gospel. Interestingly enough, Acts 2 says they were amazed. Church in our generation often focuses more on amusement than amazement. And the bottom line is, when it was all said and done, they asked, what's this mean? And of all people who stood up and started to preach, but Peter. Acts chapter 2, 3,000 are saved. You move on, Acts chapter 3 and 4, 5,000 people are saved. You go on into the book of Acts. Multitudes are added to the church. You go on further. The churches are multiplied. And folks, the simple result is the gospel began to spread around the world. And even tonight, you and I sit here, the recipients of the blessing of what happened in answer to the first prayer meeting. Folks, What an incredible account 
of the Acts of the Apostles through the Holy Spirit in answer to prayer. And we're just in Acts chapter 2. Could it be tonight that maybe the time has come for those of us in the 21st century who claim to be New Testament churches to once again get a grip on, a hold on the concept of praying like the church of the first century. Maybe we too would be accused of filling our Jerusalem with our doctrine. Maybe we too would be told that we've turned the world upside down, or might I say right side up, for Jesus Christ. God did it in answer to prayer. Let's bow our heads, please. Folks, on one occasion, the disciples came to Jesus and they found him praying. 